0: we're still in our study of uh, first Timothy and we'll be in chapter three. Now, you know, we come to the, what I think is the most interesting part of first Timothy because it deals with overseers, me, uh, and deacons, which we'll see next week. I will not have time. I, I wanted to get through all of chapter three. There's no way I can do it justice. Uh, and, and so I'll try. Um, now remember the church that was at Ephesus was having a lot of problems They they had done well. They came from a thoroughly pagan background. And it appears that just like when Paul writes to Titus, it appears that the problems were most likely caused by the leadership, or at least the leadership never resolved them. And so Paul here in 1 Timothy and in Titus gives instructions to Timothy and Titus about what is expected of people who serve the church. And so what we're going to look at today is the position of overseer, episkopos, sometimes translated bishop, more rightly translated overseer. It is the position that you have entrusted with me because of the Holy Spirit at one point led you to. And uh, my experience in pastoring and being a minister for now 42 years is that most problems that churches have They have because there was a failure at the level of leadership somewhere. And part of the reason of that failure is that we think that the purpose of leadership is to exert authority when the responsibility of leadership is to serve. You may not realize this, but as your pastor, my primary responsibility is to serve, first of all, God, and second of all, you. When I was a young minister, I remember in some of the battles in Southern Baptist life, and there was this great debate on who was to be the authority of the church. Was it to be the pastor or was it to be the congregation? And really when they said congregation, what they really meant were the deacons. That was really the battle. Now I can promise you this. Nowhere in scripture does it ever say deacons have any authority over anything. Period. End of story. Not only that, I can also promise you this. The WMU has no authority because they're not even mentioned in Scripture. If you don't know what the WMU is, you are young and cherish those moments of not knowing. It also doesn't say that I am the authority of the church. In fact, if I read the New Testament correctly, the authority of the church is the Triune God. It is Christ's church that he establishes. Now, I know that's theological, so we have to do it from a practical standpoint. Someone is in charge. No. That's how you look at it. You look incorrectly. But there are people who serve. And as you're going to see, when outlining the qualifications of the pastor, the overseer, it only really lists one responsibility. Everything else is the character of the individual, the man who serves that position. And all the characteristics would seem to point to someone who recognizes service. Now, I would say this, part of my serving isn't leading. And just like a shepherd in days of old would lead the sheep from one pasture to another, so the pastor oftentimes leads and guides in that way. But not in the sense of authority, but the sense of guidance and help and encouragement and instruction. Now, we live in 21st century America. And we have an organization and a setup, and it does require at some point that somebody ends up making decisions. Well, hopefully it's the Holy Spirit that makes them, and he reveals them to the one who serves you. And in our form of church governance, we are a congregation. Ultimately, to make a decision, you do it by vote. But understand, voting is not necessarily biblical, nor is voting the last word. Ultimately, God always has the last word. Our task is to understand. And I say that because most problems churches have come because they fail to understand this. My last three churches that I pastored, um, two of them had gone through splits when I got there. I always want to clarify, I was never the source of the split. I followed the split. Then the other one was this one. And all three of those churches had real problems. And primarily in my experience, and and I'm really confident in this, is the problems resulted from a leadership failure, a service failure. And the problem ultimately in all three of those churches is that people try to run a church like it was a business. And I will share this with you. I completely reject the idea that a church is a business. I completely reject the idea that a church should ever be run like a business. I understand that we have some legal responsibilities because of the state of New Mexico and the American government, that we have to use business principles. And I understand that there is, we we want to make sure that we balance our checkbook and that we don't spend money foolishly. I understand that. We also call that stewardship. But what I would suggest to you is that a church is to be led by New Testament principles, and those New Testament principles is how the church is led. And, and don't, I'm not suggesting bad business practices, don't get me wrong. But it really irritates me when I hear someone say, well, you know, the church is basically a business. And we've got to run it like a business. You will fail every time. I know that because you were when I arrived because that was your mindset. And that's some harsh words, and I'm saying that. And it may, you know, most of you kind of who were here back then probably knew that and understood that. You fail because the leadership does not serve according to biblical principles. If those who are entrusted by the church and the Holy Spirit of God will serve the Lord and others according to the New Testament, you'll always be Okay. I say that because here's the, this is the issue there. They fail to serve. It is a trustworthy statement. She's already said this once before. I'll say it three more times. It's really good stuff. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. If a man aspires, desires to be the overseer, the word episkopos means the one who, who serves through overseeing, who, through guidance. So let me just say this. There are several words in the New Testament used to describe the pastor pastor, sometimes one, servant, minister. The two most technical terms are episkopos, which means overseer, and presbyteros, which means elder. In Baptist life, we shy away from the concept of elders. This is what we do as Baptists. It's all time. We look at other denominations, and we don't want to be like them. So whatever they do, we think is wrong, and we go the other way. Because Presbyterians, I'm going to be honest with you, because Presbyterians baptize babies. And we want nothing to do with that. Everything they do is wrong. and They have elders, so elders must be wrong. I mean, it's kind of the mindset we have. That's what I was, you know, I kind of grew that. Well, we don't want to do that because we're not Presbyterian. Well, first of all, most churches do elders wrong. They set up a board of elders. Nowhere is there a board of anything. The primary elder of a church is the primary overseer of the church is your pastor. Pastors serve as elders. And in us, you know, in functionality, Joe would be considered that also. And the other pastors, you would, you know, some degree. But an elder, it is someone who is charged with certain responsibilities in in leading the church and serving. Paul says it's desirable that they aspire to that. Now, I grew up saying, people saying, you know, if anybody wants to be a pastor, that's probably the wrong thing. Man, you've got to, here's a sign you're a pastor. You don't want to be, but you've got no choice. Well, that's dumb. I love being a pastor. I was called when I was 16. I've heard guys preach, and I've heard, I was told this. Now, David, if you can do anything else, you do that, you don't be a pastor. Well, that's stupid advice. In other words, pastors are only, the role of pastors is left for people who are incompetent in every other aspect of life. Which is why we end up running a church like a business, because they're so dumb they can't make decisions financially, and we have to trust business people to do it. It's just a dumb way of thinking. Pastors should be people who could be successful in other aspects of life. Pastors should be people who want to be a pastor instead of something else. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a football coach. I wanted to be a male model. I could have been two of those things. But I wanted to be a pastor more than anything. I had chances to be two of those things. (laughs) And a few other things in life. I wanted to be a pastor. I was called by the Holy Spirit to be a pastor. And the church that I grew up in, when I surrendered to ministry, and then I started in ministry way too young at the age of 19 as a youth minister at Northside, my home church, Park Hills, and and the church I served Northside, both recognized that I was set aside. The people recognized I was set aside to pastor. So a pastor should have the calling of the Holy Spirit, the desire within his heart, and the recognition of the people. All that goes together. Passage, she wanted it. It's a good thing. It is a good thing. I love what I do. I don't always love everything that happens. Then notice the description. I and mean, he's going to give a set of, of qualifications because the problems were caused because the guys weren't qualified. And they got to fix it. And in the first one, um, to be above reproach, and the last one in verse 7, a good reputation, are very similar. So you know, one of the things I tell you in the list is normally when, when Paul gives a list, you don't want to break it down too much because you just want to take it in general, and you do, but there are exceptions. This is an exception. Because there was problems, there's a real deliberateness in Paul setting aside these things. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about the eight characteristics that you begin, the eight beatitudes, the poor in spirit, you know, those who mourn for sin. Those those are things you need to break down. Even, you know, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, one fruit, peace, love, joy, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Well, it's a list in in totality. There's still important aspects of that. So this is important. So the first thing he says, he's got to be above reproach. In other words, he can't be someone that the people in the church and outside the church looks at and question their character. It doesn't mean they don't sin, sure. It doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. I get that. I understand that. But by and large, if here is reproach, he needs to be up here. As much as anyone, the integrity of the pastor is critical. So you don't want me lying in a business meeting to get my way. You don't want me fudging numbers in a finance committee to kind of hide that there are problems. You don't want if if I'm having conflict with somebody to go talking behind their back. I have to be above all of that. So should you, by the way. All of us should meet these qualifications to some degree. So that's the first thing. The second one is my favorite one because it's the one we get wrong so much. The husband... Of one wife. In the Greek, it literally says a one woman man. Here's the interesting thing. There is no separate word for wife and woman or husband and man. There's the Greek language for all of the different words the Greek has. For all of the nuances it can have. When it comes to woman, wife, same word. When it comes to man, husband, same word. So the context oftentimes determines what it is. The best translation is the literal one that says, should be a one-woman man. Because that's really the translation. Now, what does it mean to be the husband of one wife? Well, there's several things. Some think it means that there's a call that the pastor has to be married. Well, that's foolishness because Paul wasn't married at this time. We don't know that Timothy was married. Some, some say that it means that guys who were single or who were widowed, they couldn't do it. doesn't mean that. doesn't mean you have to be married. It's not a command. Some think it means that you could not be a polygamist because back in that day in a place like Ephesus, polygamy, you know, was normal. Well, first of all, even among pagans, polygamy wasn't normative. They didn't have multiple wives. They had a wife and multiple mistresses. Well not wives. And besides that, Nobody within Christianity with the moral standard would have thought that. Mostly we think it means divorce, you can't mean divorce, which is odd because there's words that Paul could have used for divorce. There is specific words for divorce that Paul could have used, if he didn't use them. That's really what we mean. So we say, you know, if a guy was divorced, can't be a pastor. Now, I always ask this question is, and the same thing with the deacon, we'll see that next week, is does divorce automatically disqualify a man from being a pastor? That's the question. Does it automatically, no exceptions? Well, no, that, that's silly. Of course it does. There's no words to say that. Now we act like that. Some churches say it does. Well, what if a guy got divorced before he was married, before he can be Christian? I mean, before what if he married and, and then he became a Christian and then his wife didn't like that and left him? I know a guy, you know, he became, you know, guys in the ministries that their wives have abandoned them and left them. Are they forever not allowed to use the gifts, talents, and abilities that God gave them because their wife took off? Well, that, that doesn't seem to be the case because certainly we are told that in the case of, of someone leaving someone, that that person is free to remarry. And Paul... You know, it talks about the fact that you know, if someone becomes a believer and their spouse abandons them, they let them go, they're free to remarry. I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense. Now, certainly, I think if a guy's divorced, there has to be serious understanding of what happened. And that brings us to what is probably the best explanation. The pastor is to be a man who is faithful to his spouse and looks upon no other woman but her. Because what happened in that day and age was it was not uncommon for infidelity to occur, especially in a place like Ephesus, where it had the temple of Artemis, the goddess of love, and over a thousand prostitutes roamed the streets at night. That was a big temptation. But it's not just that. It's the idea that a man is devoted to her and no one else. So, the first church I served, I was a youth minister. There was this guy. He actually wasn't a member of our church. He had been, and he went to another church. There were two churches pretty close by, and sometimes our youth did things. And his daughter would sometimes come and do stuff at my church for my, for my youth. And he would come by. He was a deacon at another church. And this guy was, was not divorced, from marriage, but he was just sleazy. He was, he was a flirtatious man. He wasn't a womanizer because he wasn't good-looking or rich enough to be a womanizer. You can't call him a womanizer. He couldn't, couldn't hack it. He was just a sleaze. Like, why are you deacon? I'll talk about deacons next week. But when I went to Richport, they had two men, deacons. One of them on the community that called me. One of them was a prominent member of the church whose wife was on the committee that called me. Both, at some point, had had affairs while deacons. And at no point did they ever stop being a deacon. You'll want to know why a church had problems. I could give you two reasons right there. And I'm not saying there's not a place for restoration. What I'm saying is this. You don't want your servant, me, to not be completely devoted and faithful to my wife. If my wife can't trust me, could you? If I'm going to be flirtatious, is that above reproach? No. So the requirement and expectation is for a man who sets example in his home. There'll be more of that in it with kids. To set an example in his home life of love and devotion to his wife. Because when I preach about marriage and I call on you to be faithful and devoted to your spouse, you need to have the confidence that I am. Listen, more churches get in trouble over this. And I'm going to tell you this. This is true. In my experience, most of the guys who have trouble with affairs are the music guys. They are. I don't know why. I don't know why, I don't know why. Brian, why is that that so? Do you know Brian? Have you ever done research on that? Mike's not here, I'd ask Mike. (laughs) Notice what it says, temperate and self-control. Temperate means, you know, and self-control kind of go together. You've got to be sober-minded, serious, temperate, be serious. Doesn't mean you can't have fun, be fun. I understand that I tell jokes, I can be a funny guy. But serious-minded. serious minded Self-control, man, you want a guy who's disciplined. I, I struggle with this sometimes. In some areas, I have a lot of self-control. <laughs> when I'm driving, my wife told me, she said, the other day when your sister was in town, she said, you drive like a wild man. She said, well, yeah, he always has done that. So there are areas where you have to work on your self-control. But as a whole, you need to have self-control and not be one to go out of moderation, to lose your temper, to get angry, to, be, to do, say things that you can't control your tongue. You've got to control that. Respectable, Well, you want your pastor to be respectable. You want people to look at him. You want your kids to look at the pastor and have respect for him. To me, there's few things more important than you respecting me. I demand respect, but I have to live like that. Hospitable. This is different. Back then, there weren't really hotels and all that. So oftentimes, um, people would travel. You know, Christians would travel. Itinerant preachers would travel. And they needed a place to stay. So a pastor needed to be a guy who was willing to open his home up so people could have a place to stay and not have to stay with pagans. Now, you know, cultural times change. That's not what hospitable means today. I don't want any of you to stay to my house. You know. <laughs> If you got a problem, Joe will take care of you either in his house or he'll put you up in a hotel. I ain't doing it. But hospitable really has the idea of connecting with people in a generous in a loving way. You know, when, when, you, when I'm standing out there and you approach me, I need to be hospitable and talk to you, even if I don't want to. I need to do that. And I try to. I try to fake that really well. Now, any of you that come up to me and talk today, you all weren't what I'm talking about. It's people who aren't here. Oh, number, the next one is so much fun. Not indulging, overindulging in wine. You know, nowhere in the New Testament does to teach abstinence of alcohol. I've heard a lot of Baptist preachers justify it saying, well, wine just meant grape juice. No, it does <laughs> not My Greek teacher at Southwestern Seminary, a godly man, said, oinos is oinos, wine wine is wine is wine. But here's not overindulging, You need, the temptation was always to overdo it, you know, and drink all throughout the New Testament and Old Testament. Now, here's here's the thing. We live in a day where alcohol really is needed. The alcohol back then, because water was so bad, alcohol was often a remedy. Wine was a remedy for that. Medicinal purposes, social gatherings, you know, they celebrated. None of that is necessary. So I am an abstainer from alcohol. I don't, I don't touch it. You, and here's the thing. I'm a Southern Baptist, and Baptists historically and traditionally have not had their pastors drink. And that's part of the deal. When I became a Southern Baptist preacher, and I had no desire to drink, but I'll tell you this, I understand most of you don't, well, you may drink, but you don't want to think about me drinking. You don't like that. You don't want to see me at a restaurant with a beer. The other day when my sister and her husband was in town, he, we were at a restaurant. He had a beer. I, I, you know, I didn't care that he drank, but, but I just thought, well, great. Church members are going to come in and think that I'm the one drinking. So I sat at a different table. You know, It's just the way it was. <laughs> you don't want to think that. Now, so I'll say this, and, 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 I, just, and I know guys, young, ba- young preachers, well, I have the right to drink. Yeah, you do, but do you, do you don't need to, really. If that's the most important thing to you, you've got other problems. So, you know, we've had discussions with my staff, you know, we've asked, you know, about drinking, and, and I, I have a very simple philosophy. If, if they, if they want to drink alcohol, it's between them and God, I don't want to know about it. But I do tell them this, and they know it, it better never come back to me to other church, not that I find out that you drink. You better never come back. You better not. There never better. There never better be a problem caused by your alcohol. I don't want someone to come up and say, "Well, I saw so and so drink." And pastor, what's going on? Getting, you you you, have, you ever have too much in any issue that happens because they drink. They better have their resume dusted off and their bags packed. And I'm dead serious because they made a choice and that choice backfired. And I have no mercy, no compassion, and no slack. The only reason I might slightly give them a second chance is if their family would suffer because of it. I might, for the sake of their wife and children or husband and children, reconsider. But I can guarantee you they're gonna apologize, they're gonna ask forgiveness. They're going to they're gonna wash my car every weekend. <laughs> I don't want, listen, there's enough things to come back on the church, and I can cause the church enough problems on my own. I don't want to add alcohol to the reason the problems I cause. It's so important. I'll deal with deacons next week. <laughs> oh, and by the way, not a bully or violent, but gentle and not contentious or argumentative. I can be argumentative. I've had to really, I've worked, over the last 15, 20 years, I don't argue near as much. And if you don't believe me, you and I can go back there and talk about it all you want. But I don't argue much anymore. You missed that joke. <laughs> it's not worth it. It's bad. Free from the love of money. Later on, Paul will say the love of money is the root of all evil. I like it. I like money. Money comes in handy. If I don't have any, it's okay. If, if, if money, if I don't have any money, I'll be all right. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with dignity. Because if you don't know how to manage the household, how are you going to take care of the church of God? So there's some idea here if you manage to oversee your house. So you're going to manage the church as well a little bit. So this is a tough one because I feel, you know, i got a couple of guys here who have little kids that are growing up. One of them, we talked about dating pretty soon, and one of us is talking about that. Man, I'm like... How do you manage your household? What happens if their kid messes up? I've known pastors that they had a 17 or 18 year old kid mess up and then, you know, the church like, well, you can't remain pastor anymore. Well, that's silly. That's not what that means. But it means that they discipline and instruct their children correctly. Listen, kids can go off the deep end and most of you know it. Some of you who have younger kids, it's going to happen. and We can point, go in there and I can tell you which ones it's going to happen to Some of you went off the deep end. That's not what that means. It means they set an example in the discipline and guidance in their home. They set an example of their home life. I got to have credibility when I talk to you about merit family issues. Now, my daughter's 35 and she lives in another state. and You have no idea how good a job I did or didn't do. <laughs> and notice this. And not a new convert. Not a new convert so he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. So if you're a new, a new convert, you don't want a new believer to become a pastor or a deacon. I'll talk about that one next week. You must have a good reputation. I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. So he will not fall into disgrace at the snare of the devil. In other words, you want a good reputation because otherwise he, he's, his bad reputation, there's a trap in this, and it's set by the devil they would fall into. Now, I skipped over one that I want to come back to. And I only have a few minutes, but I really wanted to focus on this. Skillful in teaching. That's the only trait or, or job description that's in there. Too many churches, excuse me, too many pastors don't work at the craft of teaching and preaching. That is probably the primary thing that I do in serving is to teach you the Word of God. And on Sundays, to preach and teach the Word of God. One day, I'll be gone. The day I come to a church, I always know every church I go to, I go with the expectation I will leave. I will either walk out or they'll carry me out, you know, somewhere or the other I'm going. Whoever follows me, make sure they can teach and preach the Word of God. No church reaches people in crows if the pastor is not skilled in teaching and preaching. And if they don't master their craft and spend unbelievable hours perfecting that craft. Listen, there are things, I know I need to go visit hospitals to do a better job, but some of y'all do a better job than I do. 90% of you do a better job at visiting hospitals 80% of the time more than I do. You'll figure those statistics out. Where I excel, probably beyond most people, is at the moment where it looks like someone may lose their life or tragedy, where I have a skill set that's going to come in handy. Just in terms of visiting people, most of y'all do a better job at that. Most of you do a better job at leading certain areas all the time. But where you can't do a better job, or you shouldn't be able to do a better job, is teaching and preaching. I'm going to handle a subject matter Sunday. It's very difficult. My job is for you to understand it in a way that translates into to your everyday life. Teaching is critical. And if your pastor can't teach, you've got to find ways to help him teach. Now, this is why younger guys struggle because they aren't good at it yet. I, I'm, I remember the first couple sermons I preached. Why in the world did anybody let me preach at 17 years of age? What were they thinking? That was dumb. Even when I was 20, 21, had been in ministry for a couple of years. Eh, I shouldn't have preached probably on Sunday mornings much. You know, learn a little bit on Sunday nights, so Wednesday night, you know, go to the senior adult luncheon and teach. Eh, give me some experience. And man, that's everything. So here, Paul gives these instructions. And I've pontificated a little bit, to use a good Catholic term. But that church had problems because of the character of its pastor and we'll see next week the deacons. And Paul says, you've got to fix that, Timothy. And you, as a body of believers, have to hold me accountable. Not the deacons hold me accountable. Not the trustees hold me accountable. This is a legal issue. Not the finance, let's just the financial issue. Or the personnel, let's just that issue. But from every aspect of my character and my teaching and my responsibilities, you have to hold me accountable to not your standard. But to Jesus' standard as expressed by Paul. And with that happy note, it's seven in the mark of any good pastor is to get out on time. Joe.